0: This is guns and butter. So, who are the neoconservatives? I think uh, it's pretty clear today that they—they they are most of them are dual citizens, Israeli citizens. Not all of them, of course. Um, they are not different in essence from Benjamin Netanyahu. And the neocons, David Wormser, for example, and uh, Richard Pearl, um, have written reports for Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, so this is the same team, this is the same group. The only difference is that Benjamin Netanyahu and the Likud uh, people are Israelis and uh, officially uh, heads of states uh, in Israel, whereas the neocons are their agents within the United States.
1: I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Laurent Guiano. Today's show, 9-11, a double false flag? Laurent Guillenot is an author, researcher, and journalist. His current research focuses on the religious and civilizational backgrounds of Zionist geostrategy. His books include Jesus and John the Baptist, Historical Inquiry into a Legendary Encounter, Fairy Death, an Anthropology of Medieval Fantasy, and translated into English, J of K to 9-11, Fifty Years of Deep State, and From Yahweh to Zion, Jealous God, Chosen People, Promised Land, Clash of Civilizations. Today we discuss his latest article, The 9-11 Double Cross Theory, Pentagon Inside Job, World Trade Center Israeli Job, that analyzes the September 11th attacks as two separate but related events. Laurent Guiano, welcome.
0: Uh, Thank you. Thank you for having me, Bonnie.
1: Your analysis of the false flag attacks of September 11, 2001, is quite unique. In your article, The 9-11 Double Cross Theory,
0: Pentagon Inside
1: Job, World Trade Center Israeli Job, you write that, quote, the attack on the Pentagon and the attacks on the Twin Towers were different in many ways. What are some of the differences between the two separate attack locations on the same day that you're referring to? Well,
0: this idea has been um, in my mind for a long time, and not only in my mind. I think uh, quite a few people have sensed that there there are fundamental differences between the the Pentagon attack and the World Trade Center attacks, and... um, and also it connects with the question of, of who did it, you know, inside job or Israeli job. There are two main uh, theories going around, but of course, none of them are completely wrong. So in trying to figure out, you know, uh, what really happened and uh, how those, those two attacks connect, uh, I think one important uh, dot, you know, that I somehow could connect with the rest was uh, when I saw Barbara Hunniger's, um conference. She has a three-hour conference on video and she makes uh, the important point that the Pentagon was a military target and the World Trade Center is a civil target. And that's one fundamental difference. And she explains, which I think is very, very uh, insightful, that only the Pentagon attack could be uh, used as an act of war and could really fit the pattern of Pearl Harbor. You know, we've heard so much about the Pearl Harbor, the new Pearl Harbor. And uh, what she said is that the new Pearl Harbor was a Pentagon attack because the World Trade Center attack was basically, of course, much more uh, dramatic, but... Uh, in essence, was not very different from the 1993 uh, bombing of the Twin Towers. Of course, in 1993, none of the towers went down, but basically it was a terror attack which could not, you know, legally uh, give a pretext for invading a sovereign country. Anyway, I I felt that's an important point. And of course, there are other important differences which uh, everyone can be uh, easily aware of is... uh, First of all, if you look only at the Pentagon attack, uh, it, it's pretty simple, you know, it's just one plane hijacked and, uh, and it crashed into the Pentagon. And the damage to the Pentagon looks, you know, quite reasonably uh, consistent with the idea of a plane going in, into the Pentagon, even though I don't believe a plane went into the Pentagon, or at least not a, a commercial a- airplane. But basically, it's kind of reasonable. So it could it could uh, be quite an appropriate pretext for starting a war against Afghanistan. On the other hand, the, the Twin Towers, the demolition of the uh, Twin Towers and Tower 7 is very different in the sense that it, it's completely irrational, in a sense, you know. And it's also very traumatic. So there is a very different effect. That's why 9-11, in most people's mind, is... You know, the destruction of the Twin Towers, they think of of the World Trade Center, people don't really think anymore about the Pentagon attacks, uh, because they have seen so many pictures of the planes crashing into the the Twin Towers and the the towers uh, exploding floor by floor. So that created a traumatic um, event which put American people and people worldwide into a, a special kind of a, a mind frame to program them to accept a, a global war. So my theory is that uh, you know, those two events were organized, basically, um, they were planned by different people or at least uh, in uh, different stages. And uh, then I'm trying to find out why did those two things happen the same day? <laughs> and the, the, the answer, I, I, I mean, it's just a theory. It's just an hypothesis to try to, you know, to move on and make more and more sense of these things. Uh, I came up with the idea of uh, the double cross or the hijacked uh, conspiracy, I call it.
1: Were there any other obvious differences that you could mention uh, between these two different locales on uh, September 11th? Well,
0: yeah. Recently, I realized, for example, that um, one interesting point, if if you look at the planes which uh, allegedly uh, crashed into the Pentagon and the Twin Towers, I say allegedly, and I don't want to get too much into the the question of what planes or how many planes or this kind of thing. But let's uh, look at the we were told that the plane that crashed into the Pentagon left from Dulles Airport in Washington. So, in fact, the whole the whole event was kind of uh, taking place within Washington area. That's an interesting point. And then when you look at the two planes that crashed into the Twin Towers, they left from Boston. And, uh, you know, there is this, uh, this has been known for a long time and uh, pointed out by people like Christopher Bolin and uh, Michael uh, Collins-Piper and uh, others that uh, in uh, the, the, the Boston Logan Airport subcontracted its uh, security and passenger management to a company that is located in, uh, in Israel. So that's uh, one detail that also points to a difference of signature. And uh, many people today are very aware that the World Trade Center event has uh, Israel's fingerprint all over the place. Starting with the fingerprints of of Larry Silverstein and many people around him, I call them cyanim. I feel you know they 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 were complicit at least, uh, maybe even more than complicit to the event, and they did that for Israel. But if you look at the Pentagon, it's a little bit more difficult to to imagine that Israel or the Israeli deep state with all their all their infiltrated agents could have. Uh, control the situation to the point of organizing the 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 event in the pentagon so i'm not saying uh, i've read some comments uh, saying uh, i ignore the 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 presence of uh, of uh, the neocons crypto zionists within the pentagon so no i'm not saying that israel did not uh, contribute to the event in the pentagon what i imagine is that uh, under the leadership of donald rumsfeld uh, the neocons could maybe pull a, a group of insiders within the pentagon or within the the national security state as we we can call a deep state whatever to organize a pentagon attack but uh, without making them aware that you know there would be on the same day another much bigger event on the world trade center which would trigger uh, a response much bigger than what the the Pentagon insiders had in mind. So my hypothesis is that there were two different plans uh, coming from two different groups. Uh, It's difficult to really, you know, uh, separate those two groups but I think it's possible to some extent. And one group was interested in creating a false flag attack to justify the invasion of Afghanistan. And they had different purposes for, uh, you know, overthrowing the Taliban there Uh, and another group basically uh, Israeli uh, loyalists, were interested in something much bigger. And so they created an event which was much bigger uh, and which would uh, be big enough to pull the United States into World War IV, as one of the neocons or two of the neocons called uh, for. They were calling for a new world war in the Middle East. Uh, so, in, the, in this sense, I say, well, the 9/11 was both an inside job and an Israeli job. But of course, since the Pentagon event is much smaller than the World Trade Center event, you know, uh, we can say maybe it was a, a one-tenth inside job and nine-tenths Israeli job. So it's still an Israeli job in my in my vision of uh, things.
1: You mentioned uh, Logan Airport in Boston and how the security there was controlled by Israeli companies. Uh, was that a different situation at the airport in Washington, D.C.? Do we know?
0: Well, as, as far as I know, there is no... Uh, the, the, this company called uh, Huntley, Huntley, I mean Huntley, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, Huntley USA Corporation. Uh, it was bought by international consultant on targeted security, ICTs and if you check ICTs you'll see the Israeli connection there. I don't think they were uh, they were you know in uh, the Washington uh, airport. So I don't think there is a trace of uh, uh, Israel in Washington uh, Dulles airport. Uh, but of course that's a detail if you consider that none of these planes took off anyway. Uh, So uh, I read a comment saying well none of these planes took off. So it doesn't matter who who was doing the security Well, I think it matters in the sense that even if none of these uh, commercial airplanes took off uh, The airports themselves had to create the record that they took off with the passenger list and uh, you know They had to to fabricate proof or evidence that these planes existed. So still uh, complicity was needed within these airports and so um, uh, you know, it's easy to imagine that uh, in the Washington area, there is maybe a proximity that is easier for Washington people, Pentagon people, to have some control in uh, in the Washington Airport but in boston uh, somehow it seems that the mossad was involved all of these planes of course uh, as most people know probably were injected into the war games that were going on uh, that very day so to some extent at least they were virtual flights but you know uh it seems to me plausible at least i'm not you know that's not approved but it seems plausible that uh, there were two different people injecting different planes into the war games that's uh, but that's just a detail as i say and that's not the main uh, of course the main piece of evidence to separate to distinguish those two events i think the main the main point i think is to realize the difference in scale you know the pentagon event was a small event it would not have would not have changed the world it was just big enough to create a pretext to invade afghanistan and nothing else it would never have been enough to to um, create a shock within the public opinion for anything more than invading Afghanistan. And it was not difficult to to convince the American um, people that we need to invade and overthrow the Taliban because for years, you know, uh, uh, the Taliban have been portrayed of absolutely satanic. A- everybody hated the Taliban, so it was, it was not, you know, they didn't need more than this uh, event on the Pentagon to create an act of war and a pretext, uh, a new Pearl Harbor. But the event of World Trade Center has a very different scale, not only in what happened, but more importantly in the images that Americans saw over and over again. And it's very interesting to realize that, uh, you know, there are basically no images of the plane hitting the Pentagon. You know, there's this uh, uh, security camera which doesn't saw any plane at all. We, we see an explosion. But basically, there were no traumatic images. Whereas on the, on the World Trade Center... We can see how the mainstream media played a huge role in showing over and over these these pictures, these incredibly traumatic pictures. I mean, everybody who who saw those pictures live on the day of 9-11 and the days after and again and again and again for weeks on, uh, it created a, a huge shock. And that shock in itself was enough to change the world to change completely American public opinion. You know, within a few days, the the image of Israel was completely inverted and uh, Americans felt, you know, completely uh, empathic to uh, the Israelis and suddenly viewed their struggle against the Palestinians as part of the war on terror. So, you know, this created an incredibly uh, positive Um, impact in terms of uh, the relationship between uh, the United States and Israel. And actually, uh, in my article, I quote an article which uh, I think Michael Collins-Piper was the first to to report this article. It came out on September 11, 2001. It was published around 1pm New York time. It was written by George Friedman on his uh, uh, website, Stratfor. And he said, the big winner today, intended or not, is the state of israel and then he goes on to explain why this this was the very day of 9 11 in the early afternoon Just a few hours after the The towers uh, collapsed and he could see and it's very interesting that he say the big winner today intended or not What does he mean? <laughs> intended or not? <laughs> does he know something? You know it's very interesting and then he goes on to say you know the image of israel was getting really bad Americans were getting really fed up with israel and uh, were very sympathetic toward the Palestinians uh, because, you know, the new intifada had been uh, started. And uh, and suddenly from, you know, within a day, this completely changed. And this was not because of the Pentagon attacks, obviously. The number of dead also is very different. In the Pentagon, only 125 people were reported dead, killed in the Pentagon. That's not counting the people Who supposedly died in the plane that crashed into the pentagon but in the twin towers you know uh, it was announced uh, in the beginning that four thousand or five thousand or maybe bigger numbers even were announced and then they settled on a little bit more than two thousand dead but you know the scale is completely different so it seems to me that there is a problem to explain uh, these differences if uh, the purpose of 9/11 was to create this traumatic shock. Then why? Why did they need the Pentagon? Well, one answer would be: Well, they needed uh, to hit a military target. You know, that's that's a possibility, of course. But uh, so anyway, I developed this theory. It's only a theory and hypothesis that I, you know, put forward and uh, see what people think about it. And uh, it seems like uh, it can be helpful. I'm not saying there's still a lot of mysteries, but. Uh, that's why we need the working hypothesis.
1: You write about two competing groups within the U.S., so-called deep state. How would you characterize these competing groups? How would you distinguish the American deep state from a Zionist network?
0: Well... um you know, I'm not really a specialist of American deep politics, but uh, since I've been working on the on 9-11 and uh, the history, uh, the deep history of America going back to Kennedy and going back to, to World War II, uh, it seems that uh, the history of what we can call the national security state, that is... Basically, what we can also call the deep state, and what I define as the uh, the secret or semi-secret, semi-invisible government of the empire, because uh, America is a is a country with a dual nature. It's a democracy on the domestic level, you know, and all these domestic issues are the, the big parts of uh, issues uh, in every election, but all the issues of foreign and military policies are completely um, out of um, control of the American people, basically, you know, it's not difficult to, to sense that all the decisions are not made by the elected people. Whether it's the president or the congressman, uh, we have this deep state and this deep state is not very much concerned by domestic policies, but is completely in control of foreign policy. So it's the it's the government of the empire, you know, as opposed to the government of the uh, of the democracy. And this uh, deep state is not something, it's not an official entity, so it's difficult to define, but uh, I think everybody would agree that in 1947, under Truman, the National Security Act uh, really um, boosted this entity or maybe even created this entity. This was a time when the CIA was uh, created, the National Security Council was a national security um, advisor and so on. And so all these people who who were um organized to to somehow um make the big decisions on foreign policy and uh, uh, foreign wars and uh, regime change in uh, in latin america and so on and so on uh, so who are these people where originally basically these people we can say if you look at the cia for example the cia uh, was basically founded all the leaders the executive uh, level of the cia was made of uh, wall street lawyers or wall street um, businessmen so it was a tool for these uh, these people who consider that uh, uh, latin america is it must be under the control or how, how did Kissinger call it uh, the back door you know or whatever uh, so these people have an interest in controlling the natural resources in uh, Latin America, in uh, keeping uh, cheap oil in uh, in the Middle East. They're concerned with this kind of uh, this kind of issues. You know, uh, they are imperialist in this sense. They are globalist uh, in a sense that they they don't make much difference between America and and uh, and the global market. You know uh i'm not in their head but i I imagine for them america is the global the global empire and the global market they see america in this way they don't they're not too concerned with uh uh, domestic policies uh so um these people may constitute what we call the you know the imperialist uh, group of people who always have some interest in controlling what's going on in the world and controlling maybe what's going on in Afghanistan. I think most people would agree that one of the most important institutions or think tank that represents uh, this kind of people would be the Council on Foreign Relations, because it's one of the oldest and most representative uh, institutions of this kind of strategic school. Many heads of states... Maybe, maybe the majority of, uh, of uh, people who are, uh, especially in the State Department um, or in the White House, come from the Council of Foreign Relations, have spent years in the Council of Foreign Relations. Of course, there are many other institutions and I don't uh, have uh, uh, all of them in, in mind, but many other if some more secret than the CFR could be, could be mentioned. So we'll talk a little bit more about uh, Brzezinski because he's an important uh, player in in these events. But my uh, hypothesis is that these people had an interest in overthrowing the Taliban. It has been explained that uh, the Taliban during the year 2001 were judged to be um, not good partners for, in particular, the, the pipelines project by UNOCAL. And so they had to go. At some point, this has been documented, I think, uh, well enough. At some point, it was decided that the Taliban had to go. And with the help of the Pakistan, uh, the plan was to install a, a more uh, American-friendly regime with whom America could uh, deal. And, uh, and that's why, uh, actually, Amit Karzai was put in uh, the head of uh, Afghanistan because he had been working, actually, for UNOCAL. So he was the perfect uh, leader to to restore uh, exactly the kind of relationship that the the American imperialists want with uh, a country like Afghanistan or, or in South America. And so these people had an interest in Afghanistan. Did they have an interest in destabilizing Iraq? Well, I think there is absolutely no evidence for that. In fact, there is more evidence that these kind of people were calling for the end of sanctions on Iraq because these kind of people, what they want is uh, advantageous Commercial relationship with any country who has any kind of natural resource, they want to control the market, but they want stability. They don't care to have democracy in Iraq or anywhere else. What they want rather is a government with whom they can deal. So of course, uh, Saddam Hussein was a person. He it was quite difficult to deal with Saddam Hussein, but I see no evidence, and actually. Uh, This point has been made by um, uh, Marsheimer and Walt in their famous book, uh, The Israel Lobby and uh, American Foreign Policy. There is absolutely no evidence that people in the in the oil business, for example, wanted to uh, destabilize Iraq. And there is even no evidence at all that these people got anything from the Iraq war, you know. So uh, that came from another group. So now I can try to, to say how I see <laughs> this other group.
1: I'm speaking with author, researcher, and journalist Laurent Guillenot. Today's show, 9-11, a double false flag. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. I, I just wanted to have you comment on this, and then we can go on to the other group. Um, mm-hmm. You make the very important point that I haven't heard anyone else make, that, in fact, Zbigniew Brzezinski, uh, President Carter's national security advisor and CFR member, etc., that Brzezinski was against the invasion of Iraq. Now I've never heard anyone else make this point, and that's very important. What can you tell us about Zbigniew Brzezinski?
0: Well, he, uh, I I cannot tell you more than most people who have studied a little bit uh, 9/11 would tell you. But uh, yes, he he was. I think I would not be able to quote exactly uh, some interview. I think he, but basically he was against the Iraq War. He spoke uh, against it. Even of course he was already very much against the Iraq War. Uh, in 1991, or was it 1990 under President HW uh, Bush? He spoke I think it was a uh, United Nations. Um, I believe very strongly against uh, Against an international intervention in Iraq. So already at the time he was very very outspoken against those who were pushing for uh, the invasion of Iraq And he supported, you know, President Bush uh, senior, Uh, he he supported his decision to to just kick the Iraqis out of Kuwait and uh, let let Saddam Hussein continue to rule uh, Iraq. He even he was one of the very few who spoke about Israel in that context, saying that uh, if we destroyed Iraq, then this would this would be uh, this would encourage Israel to feel. Quite uh, at ease with uh, uh, developing a stronger weapon and uh, this, this would give Israel an unfair advantage. I, mean, I don't remember his exact words, but uh, he even mentioned uh, that Israel had nuclear weapons, which not so many American uh, politicians are willing to do so anyway again in 2001 or in 2002 and certainly in 2003-4 and he spoke very clearly about it again in 2007 when i believe there was another uh, push for sending more soldiers into iraq he was very much against it yes uh, and he kept uh, speaking against it he said i quote him he said very strong words about the iraq war he said it was uh, it was a catastrophe of uh you know, a huge. Um, it was it was a disaster. It was a disaster. The the war in Iraq, and most people. I, I checked. I try to check a little bit, and I found that most people in around the CFR, of course, Brzezinski. You know, had been a, a kind of a leading member of the CFR, the Council on Foreign Relations. Most people in that organization were against the the Iraq war, and even the present. Um, director or chairman of the of the cfr a comment in under my article on the uns review uh, mentioned that he again uh, quite recently uh, said that he had always been against the iraq war so of course not everybody was exactly on the same line but i think it's quite clear i think that most of these people who were globalists were not interested in wars to destroy Iraq or actually any other country. What they wanted is the end of sanctions and the restoration of good trade between uh, these countries. So um, what's important in the, in the theory that I try to you know, to explore is that during 9-11, we, we see two different events. And after 9-11, we see two different plans or two different scenarios Proposed to respond to 9-11 one scenario is let's go and invade Afghanistan. That's the Brzezinski scenario Let's go and invade Afghanistan overthrow the Taliban and that's it, you know, because bin Laden is in Afghanistan and uh, so we 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 have the the legitimacy to to do that, but let's do nothing else And of course from the very day the very day of uh, September 11th there was this other group uh, who were um, very strongly uh, under the um, leadership of Dick Cheney and uh, Donald Rumsfeld, whom I count. Uh, maybe we have, to, we have to talk again about those two people because they have a very special role. They are not Israelis, of course, but they have always been, I would say, mercenaries of the neocons. And the neocons, for me, are crypto Zionists. Uh, they are cyanine, basically. there are people who have infiltrated the highest level of the uh, American uh, administration. But everything they do is basically for Israel. Uh, and what they want to do for Israel is, of course, pull the United States into proxy wars that would destroy uh, the enemies of Israel, which are Iraq, uh, Syria... Libya, Lebanon, and Iran, basically, and a few more. Uh, so these people, uh, basically, if we want to identify the group that were pushing for the Iraq war, it's very simple. It's the neocons, the neoconservatives. So who are the neoconservatives? I think uh, it's pretty clear today that they, they are most of them are dual citizens, Israeli citizens. Not all of them, of course. Um, they are not different in essence from Benjamin Netanyahu. Benjamin Netanyahu is not American citizen. He's an uh, Israeli citizen, but he spent uh, several decades in the United States as a United Nations ambassador, I think, or different positions. He has been uh, very present on American televisions on CNN, and uh, and the neocons, David Wormser, for example, and uh, Richard Pearl. Um, have written reports for Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, So this is the same team. This is the same group. The only difference is that Benjamin Netanyahu and the Likud uh, people are Israelis and uh, officially uh, heads of states uh, in Israel, whereas the neocons are their agents within the United States. And so that's the other group, and the story of of this group is very well known. You know, they they started to gain influence in the 1970s, uh, after the Watergate, and uh, they have used these two people, Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney, as uh, I would I would say hushers. You know, the Cheney and Rumsfeld. Uh, managed to enter the Ford administration in quite high positions and then through the back door they brought uh, Wolfowitz and, uh, and Douglas Feith I, I think and uh, other people close to uh, Richard Pearl. Cheney and Rumsfeld in my view must be understood as uh, as um, mercenaries of Richard Pearl, basically for whom they had worked um, even since uh, the 60s I think And so um, they slowly, little by little, gained more and more power, bringing more and more people into the administration uh, under Reagan. You know, Reagan rewarded the neoconservatives by bringing about 20 of them within his administration. Bush Sr. tried to kick a few out. He didn't like them. Bush Sr. was not a pro-Israeli president. I think uh, he has been very unfairly treated by many people uh, in the dissident uh, movement, because in fact, if you look closely at what he did, the Israelis did not like him at all. He was a friend of the Saudis. He was not a friend of of the Israelis at all. So he didn't like the neocons. Uh, and of course, Bush Sr. Ha- should not be confused with Bush uh, Jr., who was not at all under the influence of his father. That's another story. But anyway, to continue with the neo during the Clinton administration, they, they created the PINAC, so they, they were out of the administration, but other other crypto Israelis, of course, were within the Clinton administration. And during that time, the neocons tried to build up their uh, and prepare for the, the next election. And they created the, this PINAC, this project for a new American century, which is really, in fact, a project for a new Israeli century. And then they entered, uh, they completely dominated Bush Jr.'s uh, administration, thanks to Dick Cheney, who was both uh, Bush uh, campaign director and who put himself basically dick cheney um, uh, managed he chose the people to make the the government of george bush jr and he chose himself as vice president of course before that and uh, rumsfeld was in the pentagon he brought wolfowitz uh, douglas feiss and all those key people of the neocons and within the white house you know there were a lot of neocons and in the state department Colin Powell was not at all a neocon, and Colin Powell himself was very reluctant. He was finally forced, almost forced, and fooled and tricked into calling for the Iraq war. And he publicly said he was he had been uh, he had been uh, cheated, you know, into this uh, position to call for the Iraq war in front of the United uh, Nations um, General Assembly. So we see progressively this uh, crypto-Zionist group gaining more and more influence on foreign policy and uh, taking the the high ground over the imperialist, but using the imperialist uh, rhetoric and uh, and posturing as imperialists themselves. When they create the PINAC, the Project for a New American Century, they present it as a way for America to regain its uh, imperial status in the world, you know? Uh, but when we see the state of the United States today and the, you know, the reputation of the of America in the world today, we can see that it did not profit at all America. None of these wars profited America in any way. So... In fact, today, it can be said that those two groups are maybe a little bit difficult to distinguish at this point, 20 years after 9-11. Because 20 years after 9-11, even the CFR is probably very much infiltrated by Zionists today. And it's probably quite difficult to find any place, any institution of any importance where the Zionists have not uh, gained some uh, strong influence.
1: You mentioned that Dick Cheney and also perhaps Donald Rumsfeld, that either one or both of them had worked with Richard Pearl before they came into any administration. Do you know in what capacity they were working with Richard Pearl? Well, actually, they weren't. I made a mistake,
0: but uh, let me try to get this straight. I think they. Started to be connected very closely to the neoconservative through Richard Pearl in uh, 1974. I don't think they worked together before. Uh, Donald Rumsfeld was actually already working uh, for um, uh, Ford before uh, Ford took over uh, Richard Nixon's uh, presidency. He's the elder of the two. Uh, Rumsfeld is, uh, I think, nine years older than Cheney. So Uh, When Rumsfeld joined um, the White House, he was, I think, chief of staff of uh, President Ford. And then in 1974, he became secretary of defense for the first time under Ford. And then he brought in Dick Cheney, who took over the position of chief of staff. And then from that time on, they they were always together somehow. And they kind of acted as... uh, pushers for uh, for the neoconservatives they brought paul wolfovich and uh, richard pipes who were both proteges of uh, richard pearl into the administration through team b and team b if you remember was a kind of a parallel cia somehow that the neoconservatives created in order to bypass the cia and create alarming Uh, reports about the Soviet Union military armaments. And at that time, we have videos of Rumsfeld. We have speeches of him saying, you know, the Soviet Union is rearming and we have to boost up our military uh, capacity and so on. Because the CIA was producing reports saying, well, you know, they they are not a threat anymore. So (laughs) the neoconservatives absolutely wanted the Soviet Union to be a threat because they needed the Cold War. Because if there was no Cold War, and that was actually one of the the purpose of assassinating Kennedy, I think, because Kennedy wanted to end the Cold War. And if there was no Cold War, there wouldn't be no way to use Egypt and all the Arab state, you know, into the Cold War. And there would be little interest in Israel, either from Soviet Union or from the United States. Of course, I don't understand exactly how it all works, but uh, it seems like Cheney and Rumsfeld have always been used as um, a connecting link between the neoconservatives and the administration.
1: I'm speaking with author, researcher, and journalist Laurent Guillenot. Today's show, 9-11, a double false flag. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, how would you characterize the neoconservatives in terms of their philosophy. You have said that the mindset of the Israelis is very biblical. Now, would Mm. you apply that uh, characterization to the neoconservatives as well?
0: Yes, I would. That's one of the main theme of my book, uh, From Yahweh to Zion. I, I try to show because I believe it's really an important truth that Zionism itself is very biblical. It's the biblical plan. And a misunderstanding that I think is uh, preventing a lot of people from understanding that is that they think they say no, Zionists are not religious people. Well, it doesn't matter they're religious or not religious, they are biblical. Because for people like uh, the early Zionists, the father of Israel, for example, David Ben-Gurion, he was certainly not very religious, but he was completely 100% biblical. <laughs> because the Bible can be read either as a religious book or as a project for the destiny of the jewish people so you know to understand the mindset of Zionists, zionist in general and neoconservatives in particular we have to step away from this uh, concept of religion religious or not religious does not really is not uh, so relevant to understand the jewish mind in general actually But if we uh, try to understand who were the neoconservatives, then the best way is to look at the man they called their mentor, uh, at least the mentor of Irving Kristol and Norman Podorest and uh, many others, uh, Philip Zelikow and uh, Douglas Feith. Um, Most of these people um, refer to Leo Strauss as their mentor. So. I find it very interesting to see that if you go, for example, on on Amazon and you look at the books about uh, about Leo Strauss, you find books, you know, like uh, portraying uh, Leo Strauss as an American imperialist. You know, there's one book with a big U.S. flag on the the cover, and the title is Leo Strauss and the Politics of American Empire. Or you have other books like Leo Strauss and the American Right. And what what these authors want to say, like Leo Strauss, is an American imperialist. He is the the brain of the neocons because the neocons are American imperialists. But that's not true. You know, that's kind of of a, a false flag in itself. It's a false image of Leo Strauss. And this false image is used both by those who want to praise Leo Strauss. They say, well, look, he's a great American patriot. He, he loves America so much that he he dreams that, that America rules the world. And it's the same uh, uh, image used by those people who criticize or blame uh, Leo Strauss for all the damage done by the neocons. They say, look, Leo Strauss is, the, is the, uh, almost like a caricature of the American imperialist. But in fact, if you read, you know, Leo Strauss is uh, notoriously difficult to understand because he has two different levels of teaching one level is the level of his written books and his public his public uh, teaching he was a teacher in the University of Chicago I don't know I think he, he died in the early 70s or late maybe in 1968 I'm not sure but uh, he also gave a few conferences and he, it was known that he had a, a circle of insiders a circle of disciples And even some of his disciples have said, you know, look, uh, um, Leo Strauss uh, would say things to us that he would never say publicly or write. But some of those conferences have been, you know, that he gave have been recorded and then later printed. And one very important conference, uh, a conference he gave in the Hillel Institute, I think in 1962, it's called Why We Remain Jews. And if you read that conference that he gave to a Jewish audience, well, you can see very clearly that um, the, the real Leo Strauss is not at all an American imperialist. He is a, what I would call a meta-Zionist. What, what I mean by a meta-Zionist is a, a man who uh, thinks Israel, it's good that he say, basically he supports Israel as a state, but he wants to emphasize that uh, Israel's destiny is not to be just a state. Israel is a worldwide community. So Israel has to be not only in Israel, but has to be in the world. And uh, I, I think he comes close to saying that American Jews must become uh, like a fifth column within America to help Israel reach its destiny. So Leo Strauss, just like David Ben-Gurion, was not at all a religious man. He never spoke about God. And he called in this conference, he called his Jewish audience. He said, we have to return to the Jewish faith, the faith of our ancestors. But if you read carefully, you can very easily see that what he means is not at all faith in God. it's faith in the destiny, the superior destiny of the Jewish people. So uh, I realized I wrote one article on the UNS review called uh, 9-11 was a Straussian coup. Because if you consider that the neocons or at least the core of the neocons are Straussians, disciples of Leo Strauss, then uh, 9-11 was a Straussian coup. And that means the whole purpose of uh, 9-11 was to realize the vision of Leo Strauss of Israel being uh, a kind of a double sided entity with uh, one 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 side of israel is a, a state in the middle east but israel is also and that was the the, the meaning of israel before 1947 you know there there's all kinds of uh, i like to to quote for example uh, this famous uh, front page of the london daily news where you you had israel uh, is calling for a, a global war against germany you know 1933 so what did what did they mean by israel at that time they meant the worldwide communities of israelites you know at that time they would they would like to refer to jews as israelites israel as a state did not exist yet so israel has two meanings for jewish people still today you can be an israeli citizen or you can be an Israelite <laughs> living somewhere else, but you are still an Israeli by, by, uh, by conviction and, and by heart. I'm talking here about uh, dedicated uh, Jews who have now become dedicated Zionists. Of course, there are many Jews who don't uh, fit that description at all. Uh, but the neocons have gained such an influence over the, the Jewish community in America, even though they have many enemies, many people would criticize them. They completely dominate. Their voice is absolutely dominant today within the American uh, community.
1: Does the destruction of so many Middle Eastern countries in the wake of 9-11 resemble anything like the Oded Ye Zionist plan for the greater Middle East? Is there a connection there with the Oded Yenon plan?
0: Well, yeah, I think uh, this is the same uh, vision, the same. It shows exactly that this vision of. Uh, uh, the imperial destiny of uh, Israel, at least the local imperial destiny in the Middle East, Israel is destined for these people to rule the Middle East. In fact, for these people, Israel had no other choice, either to disappear or to dominate the Middle East, which is a quite a realistic way to look at things. You know, They are very much aware that if they don't dominate, it's dominate or be exterminated. That's how they see things, in this very dualistic way. Uh, that's that's really uh, uh, the the main problem in uh, the mind frame of uh, these people who are the the leaders of Israel they have the sense that they have to uh, finally uh, rule the Middle East and that's biblical too you know and uh, one one illustration in my view of how biblical is the Neocons project is uh, the famous theme of the seven nations Uh, I found incredibly revealing that uh, Wesley Clark, you know, this famous general whose father is actually a a certain uh, rabbi, Jacob Cain. So Wesley Clark, he's the one who mentioned, you know, that uh, he he said uh, um, that uh, he went to the Pentagon one time and he met people close to Wolfowitz and they said to him, uh, they showed him a paper and they said, uh, look, we are going to invade seven nations. And he repeated the seven nations again and again. And it's very funny because the seven nations uh, are a Biblical theme very well known by all Jewish people. They are the seven enemies of Israel that Yahweh uh, wants to be destroyed. Yahweh in Deuteronomy 7 and the book of uh, Joshua also, you have this uh, call. Yahweh is calling for the destruction, the eradication of these seven enemy nations. Uh, and I don't think it's a coincidence that Wesley Clark, um, you know, brought brought up this uh, seven nation uh, theme. In fact, he was not the only one to mention seven nation. I think George Bush in one of his early speeches on uh, September 2022, maybe mentioned the seven uh, seven nations as the rock states. Uh, Yeah, the world states, of course, he mentioned in those uh, nations that uh, some nations that some countries that Israel is not interested into like like North Korea, but the very, uh, the very idea of uh, uh, targeting seven nations, in my view, is a Israeli signature, because the more you study uh, the mind of these people who are absolutely dedicated whether by religious conviction or by some different kind of conviction, but as like I say, it doesn't make much difference, are absolutely convinced that Israel is destined to become the new center of the new world order. This is a theme that you, you find expressed here and there. And one thing I like to remind, which I find really incredibly revealing, is that even David Ben-Gurion, because David Ben-Gurion is really the soul of Israel, Uh, Israelis recognize him as a real the father of the nation Uh, in 1962 David Ben-Gurion was very, very afraid for his uh, newly found country. And, you know, he struggled with Kennedy, uh, as as, um, people who have studied the question know, About he wanted to convince Kennedy to turn his eyes away from uh, the fact that Israel was building a nuclear bomb. And he he felt it was absolutely vital, absolutely uh, necessary for Israel to have the nuclear weapon otherwise israel would not survive uh, the attacks of all his enemies so he was absolutely in a state of mind of fearing for the existence of his country and at the very same time in 1962 he gave this very famous interview for the magazine look and uh, the the question that this magazine was asking a few people was how do you see the world in 20 in 25 years and he said well in 25 years the united nations will not exist anymore and a new center of the of the world a new united nations will be based in jerusalem isn't that extraordinary you know this incredible confidence of a country that had been created just 20 20 years before he had this vision that finally israel will be in 25 years i mean uh, it's still not realized of course but i i'm truly convinced this is a real uh, deep conviction of many israeli leaders And I find it very biblical because I make a a parallel with uh, the biblical story of uh, the creation of uh, the uh, Jewish monarchy in Palestine with the blessing and the protection of the Persian Empire at the time of Ezra. If you read the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, uh, you understand very clearly that at this point the, the community of, of influential Jewish people around around uh, Ezra and uh, this kind of uh, rich influential uh, Jews in Persia managed to get permission from the Persian Empire to create a new state uh, in Palestine and they recreated, Maybe they just created. In fact, eh? it's a it's a question of debate, <laughs> because they went there and they claimed this is our land, this is a Jewish land. But most people who were living there didn't didn't uh, really like uh, their ideas so much. So had, they had a lot of difficulty to rebuild their temple and and so on. But I see that as the biblical pattern of the way uh, Zionists or proto-Zionists in that in that case want to use the dominant empire and hijack. The empires foreign policy to get the empire to to protect and uh, help them create their nation in uh, Palestine I find I find a very interesting parallel between the foundation of uh, Israel in 1947 48 and this uh, biblical uh, pattern the point is uh, the point is you know the, the goal is always to hijack the foreign and military policy of the Empire and the empire have changed throughout uh, centuries. You know, at that time it was Persia. Uh, much later, it became the Spanish Empire or the Roman Empire, and the uh, uh, Roman Empire, of course, first, uh, and then later the Catholic uh, Empire, and then it became the British Empire. And they used the British Empire to to get the Balfour Declaration and to make the the first foundation stone of their state, etc. And then, of course, for the last. Uh, almost uh, 100 years or uh, 80 years at least uh, the, the dominant empire is the united states so the neocons uh, policy or strategy is to use uh, the empire for for in fact the, with the goal of creating a new empire uh, and when their new empire will be created of course uh, the fate of the american empire will be sealed and we are starting to see that but, of course, everything is not going according to plan, fortunately.
1: Laurent Guilhonneau, thank you. Okay, thank you, Bonnie. I've been speaking with Laurent Guilhonneau. Today's show has been 9-11, a double false flag? Laurent Guillenot is an author, researcher, and journalist. His current research focuses on the religious and civilizational backgrounds of Zionist geostrategy. His books include Jesus and John the Baptist, Historical Inquiry into a Legendary Encounter, Fairy Death, An Anthropology of Medieval Fantasy, and translated into English, JFK to 9-11, Fifty Years of Deep State, and From Yahweh to Zion. Jealous God, Chosen People, Promised Land, Clash of Civilizations. Laurent Guillaumeau has a degree in engineering, a master's in biblical studies, and pursued his interests in the history and anthropology of religions, earning his doctorate in medieval studies. His articles are posted at UNZ.com. That's unz.com. dot C-O-M. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaromako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at GunsAndButter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at Faulkner at GunsAndButter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio.